Greetings and howdy, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the fantastical, the whimsical, and the overrated RPG Showcase with your host, Mike Conway, who is me. You can catch this podcast every other week at www.rpgshowcase.com, and you can contact me at mike at rpgshowcase.com. I'm still having a little trouble getting this on Tuesdays like I want, but I'm sure everything will fall into place soon enough. Today's show has an update to a news piece that I talked about last time. And, as I said on the website, I'm also reviewing Dungeons & Dragons, Wrath of the Dragon God, which aired last week on the Sci-Fi Channel. I'll also be talking about OVA, Open Versatile Anime, which is a very interesting game using a new engine called the Ricochet System. I also have a couple of rants in store. Hope you like them. First off, the update. Last time, I mentioned the PDF printing service from Politically Incorrect Games. Brett Bernstein wrote to me to let me know of a few additional features of the service. For one, they will also print products from Deep7 and are looking to expand to other publishers, and they're also developing a semi-automatic system for printing it out. They also changed the options a little. You can get them bound with a clear plastic cover, or you can get them unbound, so that way you can do it yourself, punch holes yourself, put it in a three-ring binder, or whatever way you want to go. Thanks for letting me know, Brett. Again, you can find more information on their website. Alright, let's get the first rant out of the way. Lately, I've been looking around RPG Now, and uh, besides admiring the new look to the site, there seems to be quite a bit of stuff for D20 and otherwise regarding gritty and low magic settings. I mean, there seems to be more every day. What exactly is with the new glut of low fantasy, low magic games? Is there really a demand for games where your heroes have no power and can die at the drop of a hat? I get enough of that when I play a first level character in Dungeons and Dragons. If you really want low magic and deadly combat, Slow down your progression, give out fewer experience points, and maybe restrict growth to, say, 5th level. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We roleplay to be heroes. We roleplay to be bigger than life. We roleplay to be someone. I and most people I know are lower to middle class people, similar to the peasantry in an average fantasy game. Why would I want to play someone like that in a game? I can just walk out the door for that. For no magic fantasy, I can join the Society for Creative Anachronism. As a disclaimer, I want everybody to know that I love D&D, and I love the SCA. I play D&D, and I've been in the SCA, and I wouldn't mind doing it again soon. Fighting in the SCA is a real sport. I'd honestly like to see more games where the characters start out a bit more powerful than what we normally see. A while back, there was an issue of Dragon Magazine that talked about playing a Wuxia game with D&D. Now, Wuxia is the really cool martial arts movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. While the article gave us a lot of great information about the genre and how to use it in D&D, I had to disagree with the rule that characters can't fly until they reach 10th level. Why 10th level? Yes, I know if I'm the GM, I can easily change that rule. But I'm talking about a flaw in game design here. In a lot of games, the sacred cow of game balance is invoked to create beginning characters who are scrubs. Two games that really put that across are the old Storyteller Street Fighter game and the West End Games DC Universe game that used the D6 system. And these two games took universes that are epic in scope and forced you to create characters that could never compete with the characters you see in the stories. In Street Fighter, as the rules are written, that means if you go straight by the rules and don't do house rules or anything, there's no way to create a world warrior like you see in the video games. No, you'd have to game through a lot of game sessions to even begin to come close to people like Ryu or Chun-Li or Dalsim. DC Universe, as the rules are written, again, 
right in the book, no house rules. You can't create someone on the same level as Superman. Heck, even if you took a character of power level 5, you'd still have some trouble creating a character like Robin. They use the excuse of characters being at the beginning of their careers, so you can always develop them through gameplay. Guess what, guys? Maybe I don't want to go that route. Maybe I'd like to play a hero that's been around the block for a bit. What are you afraid of? Think your precious game balance will be destroyed if players can create a character that has some chance of not sucking? For the record, there's a rumor out there that the new DC Comics RPG will use the Mutants and Mastermind game engine. With the flexibility that Mutants and Masterminds has, you can bet that such a game would allow you to actually play somebody worthy of being in the DCU. If that rumor is true, then good move. So basically, I'm just tired of seeing low-powered games with low-powered characters. There's enough grim, gritty, and realistic low-fantasy games out there, folks. Let's see the other end of the spectrum. I know this probably sounds weird coming from the co-author of the Wizard of Oz role-playing game, since Oz is a low-powered setting, but Oz was created as a low-powered setting, although there are some pretty powerful characters, such as Queen Lurline and the Private Citizen. Now that all said, let's get on with the movie review. Last week, the Sci-Fi Channel premiered Dungeons & Dragons 2, Wrath of the Dragon God. According to the Internet Movie Database, one of the working titles for the movie was The Elemental Might, and that might have been a better title for the movie, as you'll see shortly. I have to admit, I'm not too impressed with a lot of the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. I find myself left a little bit wanting with their original series and their movies, so when I heard the D&D sequel was coming from the Sci-Fi Channel, I was skeptical. However, I'm glad I watched anyway. Unlike the original movie, which seemed to want to rip off Star Wars and Indiana Jones and combine them into a weird fantasy movie, this picture was Dungeons & Dragons. Make no mistake, if you took Dungeons & Dragons and made it into a movie, this was it. This was the movie. The plot of the movie is this. 100 years after the original film, Damodar is looking to exact his revenge on Ismir. Since the characters of the first film have presumably died or moved on, Damodar has nothing except the nation of Izmir to take out his frustrations on. He's now an undead, and he's acquired the elemental black orb in order to cure, both cure his condition and raise the dragon god from the dead to destroy Izmir. It's up to a tax collector and former hero to the realm, Beric, and Melora, who's an amateur mage and his lady love, to find heroes to reclaim the orb and stop Damodar's plans. The heroes they find are Lux, who's a female barbarian and darn cute one, Dorian, a cleric of Obat High, Ormeline, an elvish wizardess, and Nim, a rogue. Uh, given Nim's height, I'm assuming he's a halfling. And if I mispronounce anybody's name, I apologize. Watching this movie was a lot of fun for me. I've heard some complaints about it, um, comparing the movie to Lord of the Rings, and that it has a similar plot, and the characterization is follow. Here's a hint, guys. It's D&D. The one thing I liked about the setting is the way about this one is that they took Ismir and moved the whole setting lock, stock, and barrel into Greyhawk. They also redid the look and feel of the kingdom to make it look more like a traditional D&D setting. I think linking Ismir to Greyhawk was the best move they could have done. Hearing the name Obat High made my ears perk up, and hearing a reference to the barrier peaks was just too cool for words. The writers and producers really went out of their way, it seems, to make this a D&D movie. Unlike the last movie, which used magic dust for any kind of spell effect, we actually got to see spell components used, as well as magic items like the Ring of the Ram and a Gem of True Seeing. Spell preparation was also used, like when Ormeline said, I only have two teleportation spells prepared, one to take us to Damodar and the other to take us home. 
Sweet. The spell worked like as described in the player's handbook. She had to be able to see the area she was teleporting in to be able to do it. Too bad she teleported part of herself into a wall when they reached Amadar. We got to see a lot more monsters than in the first movie. A lich proved to be quite an opponent. We see magmen, who are used by both PC and NPC alike. There's goblins, and a Draco lich, and even a reference to Dro. You only see the Dro's blood, but it is a Dro nonetheless. I wish I'd had my monster manuals handy when I was watching the movie. Now there is PC death in the movie. When one of the characters fails his saving throw and he gets breathed on by a white dragon. That's another thing, too. We get to see a white dragon and a black dragon and a night dragon. None of the usual dragon types you usually see in movies. The storyline's very simple. Stop the bad guy, save the kingdom. This is good stock storytelling you'd see in a typical D&D game. I'm not worried about deep stories and profound characterization. This movie was meant to be fun, and it succeeded on every, every level. Damodar stands alone as a great villain in this movie, where he was a joke in the first movie. They left off the blue lipstick and dressed up in more appropriate garb. To me, he seemed a lot more real here. Bruce Payne played him very well. Damodar was a good villain. I liked him this time. I have only a few problems with the movie, but they're relatively minor. One, I was really hoping to see the Barbarian do the Berserker thing. She started to at one point when the characters were being attacked by brigands. There's a reference earlier in the movie when the rogue was worried that she might go into a frenzy and kill them all. But, well, who wouldn't be, who wouldn't be worried about that? She was stopped by the wizard, though, just before she could really berserk. Uh, that way they could get into the dungeon. It's too bad I was really hoping to see her wig out. On the brighter side, though, the characters were really well done, especially the rogue. I thought he was the most best-developed member of the party, and we really got to see the strengths that a well-played rogue can bring to the table, from backstabbing to finding traps. He was also a jerk, but the kind of jerk that's just too cool. He was cynical, but still fun, and that's not an easy char character to write. I loved him. And not only that, but he actually did save all the characters by using his detect traps skill. Otherwise... <laughs> they would have been filleted. <laughs> the reason that I said that they should have kept the title The Elemental Might has to do with the process that it took to defeat the Dragon God. The magic used to bring the big baddie down made use of all four main elements, earth, air, fire, and water, as well as faith in the nature god Obad Hai. There were some thinking parts of the movie, like where the cleric said that there was a power beyond steel and magic that was needed to bring down the dragon god, and Malor herself having to find the hidden records that would reveal the magic needed to bring down the dragon. They really had to think about that. And any good D&D ga uh, game, or campaign, or adventure will have some of those thinking parts. All in all, D&D Wrath of the Dragon God was a great movie. It was a lot of fun, and it was paced like a D&D game. I swear this could have come from many tables I've had the pleasure of playing at. Make no mistake, it was called Dungeons & Dragons, and Dungeons & Dragons it was. When the DVD comes out, I'm there. On a side note, I've seen a few reviews of the movie. I'm surprised, since D&D is a heavy draw, and I know gamers to be very opinionated, including yours truly. I saw one review on Internet Movie Database, and that was good. But if you go to filmcritic.com, you see a review by a guy who's pretty typical of critics. He's a guy who hates fantasy. So, to Christopher and all you other idiots out there who call yourself critics might be listening to this podcast, if you hate science fiction and fantasy, stop going to see them. Stop reviewing them. Stop having anything to do with them. Two thumbs down, hate Star Trek, loathe Lord of the Rings, take your thumbs and shove them right up your ass. 
I'm tired of hearing complaints about fantasy movies not being realistic, having second-rate sets and special effects, which is what Christopher said about Lord of the Rings, and other such crap. Now, there's a difference between a critic and a reviewer. A reviewer is someone who likes to balance out good points and bad points of something, gives an opinion, and leaves the audience to make up their mind. A critic is nothing but a complainer who receives a bad heart from the wizard. They focus on little things and make a big deal of that. I strive to be a reviewer. I don't want to be a critic. I don't want to be such a lame and negative type person. Now, if you don't like science fiction or fantasy, stay away from them. Just stay away. You're a bunch of idiots whose opinions carry no weight whatsoever. I know that you don't actually like to watch these movies either. If you've actually bothered to watch them, you'd like them. Do you think we're stupid? I've seen it where you morons actually give a movie a bad rating, but when it becomes a smash hit, you suddenly think it's the movie of the year. Stop it. Real people watch movies, and real people like the movies that you hate. Stay away from our fantasy and our science fiction. And for real D&D fans, you better well watch this movie. You'll be glad you did. And we have our game review coming up right after this. Five secret ingredients, a few short weeks, and some of the most talented wordslingers in the fudge realm. It's a sure recipe for adventure. That's right, it's Fudge Factor Magazine's Iron Fudge Master Competition. Hi, I'm Carl Cravens, Managing Editor for Fudge Factor Magazine, and I want to invite you to test your writing skills in a battle to determine who will be the Iron Fudge Master of the Year. Write the best article based on the secret ingredients and you will receive fame and renown and see your work published in Fudge Factor magazine, not to mention the cool prizes to be awarded to the first three places. So, choose your ingredients, stir in some fresh ideas, add a dash of creativity, and serve it up with a flourish of your pen. Contest deadline is the end of October, so get to writing before the soup gets cold. Visit www.fudgefactor.org slash competition.html for more details. Allez, cuisine! Actually, that's something I'd like to see in our hobby would be an Iron Chef-style camp competition with things like Iron Chef D20, Iron Chef Fudge, Iron Chef Tristat, and so on. Or by genre, Iron Chef Fantasy, Iron Chef Cyberpunk. That would have to be a load of fun, although televising it might be a little boring. Hmm, tappa tappa tappa. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> For those listening, though, who don't live in the United States, don't have cable, or who aren't familiar with Japanese television, Iron Chef is a competition where a challenger goes up against what's called an Iron Chef, who is a chef that is the tops of his type of cuisine, whether it's French, Italian, or Chinese, or whatever. Now, the guy that created the show, whose name is Chairman Takeshi Kaga, reveals a secret ingredient, and then the chefs have one hour to make three to five dishes with that ingredient. So now you know how Carl's Contest works. Anyway, I digress. On with the game review. This week, we're looking at a new contender to the anime market. That game is OVA from Wise Turtle Publishing. Now, OVA originally stands for Original Video Animation, but here it means Open Versatile Anime. The purpose of this game is to emulate any genre out there, and from the looks of it, it can emulate most, if not all. When I gave the game the initial once-over, I saw one thing that I wish more games would do. Provide plenty of character examples. These characters are used extensively throughout the book in examples of play. 
where there's a rule. One of them is demonstrating how it's used. The characters come from all sorts of genres. One is a very young magical girl. Another is a space-bound bounty hunter with a robotic companion. Another is a robot. Another is an exiled ninja. And then there's a wizard and an amnesiac psionics user, a teenage boy genius, and a Ranma-style cursed celebrity, and more. If you want examples of this game handling any genre, just looking at the character list will bear that out. Character creation is interesting. I'm not normally into games that don't have any set, you know, attributes, ability scores, or the like. But a good point is made here. A character is defined by what they can do. I know I've said many times about a Jedi from Star Wars. Ooh, he quick! And heard others talk about a character being really strong, or being smart, or a good swordsman. <clears throat> I don't think anyone comes out of a theater saying, Oh man, he had an 18 wisdom! Well, some people might. I was one of the people who assigned uh, Vampire the Masquerade Clans to characters in The Crow. Now, the author, Clay Gardner, felt that it can get too confusing with all the attributes, skills, perks, faults, etc., etc., etc. Personally, I hate long lists of skills myself, but that's me. So, what Clay did, when he, he just came up with two sets of stats, abilities and weaknesses. Pretty straightforward. Abilities are rated from 1 to 5, and weaknesses are rated from minus 1 to minus 3. Instead of a pool of points like I've seen in a lot of games, making a character requires that the abilities and weaknesses balance each other out point-wise, so they equal zero when everything is all added together, give or take about five points. This rule is called Ground Zero, and is what the game uses as a default. They give a couple more, like having a point pool, plus a ceiling on how many points and weaknesses you can take. Although you do see that with some other games too, like, say, GURPS. It can take a bit of doing to make it all balance out. The character on the website, Summer Dryad, is a character I originally put in HeartQuest, but I decided to try rebuilding her using OVA. It was a little hard to make it come out to zero. In fact, you'll find exactly a five-point difference. However, this method does ensure a balanced character, no matter what kind it is or how powerful. This game boasts two magic systems, Arcane and Witchcraft. Arcane magic lets you take any ability and cast it as a spell, and Witchcraft allows you to take any weaknesses and cast it as a curse on someone. Now, before any of my Wiccan listeners write in to tell me, or, well, or to Wise Turtle Publishing, just remember that you can change what it's called. If you're the GM, you can do that. However, uh, this does make for a very flexible magic system, regardless of what you want to call it. Also, creating combat powers is easy as well. You, you basically take one ability, power move, and that lets you create as few as one attack, or you can create many attacks. You just take the one ability. It doesn't really matter. You use the level of power move for all of your attacks, but you can buy things like perks and flaws to modify it. Attacks use a trait called endurance to draw from, and you have a base of 10 that each attack uses. And perks and flaws will raise or lower that amount of endurance uh, that it costs to use a power. Now, next, we talk about the resolution system. It was really, I was really enjoying it until I read further. As many of you know, I'm not really keen on dice pool mechanics. And here it kind of starts to go in that direction. OVA uses six-sided dice, and you start out with two of them. You roll them, and you take the highest number, and then you compare that to a difficulty number. If they come up on the same number, then you add those two together. And then, again, you compare it to the difficulty number. You try to roll equal to it or above it. Now, the problem comes, though, when you start taking abilities into account. For each plus you have an ability that applies to what you're doing, you roll an additional die. So if you're rolling against an ability with plus three, you add that to the initial two dice, you're rolling a total of five dice. The more dice you roll, the better chance you have of getting it. But there's one example listed where a character winds up rolling up to 12 dice. 
that might bog down the gameplay a little just uh, while you pair up dice and add them together. However, it's not like other dice pool games where you have to succeed so many times. Um, however, the way this is written up, it probably wouldn't take as much as I'm, as much as I'm uh, thinking. Something that I noticed when looking at some of the numbers is if you roll just the initial two dice and add them together, then add the ability score, it works with the difficulty numbers. So if you wanted to use that as an optional rule, that's one thing. A unique feature, though, is the use of negative dice. Um, like, if you have to roll against a weakness, you still roll two dice, but then you add dice with each point of weakness, just like abilities. The difference here is that you don't add any dice together. It is possible to still succeed rolling against a weakness, but it's much more difficult. You can influence dice rolls with two kinds of dice. There's drama dice, and there's miracles. Drama dice, you spend endurance, and you get extra dice to roll. If you spend enough, however, you can make a roll automatically succeed, and that's the miracles. Endurance is used for everything. However, in combat, you use health. You simply make opposed rolls for combat in the same manner as I talked about before. Uh, when your health is depleted, you start going to endurance, but you take a penalty to your rolls. But once endurance is gone, you go unconscious. A type of damage that's covered in OVA is something that you frequently see in anime. Gag damage, which are like the toon style effects where someone is knocked silly or gets pounded by a hammer by a woman who's mad at him. This kind of this captures this kind of effect perfectly. The GM section gives a lot of information on how to run a good game. A lot of it is actually some very generic material, but even so, it's still very useful. There's a lot of good tips here no matter what kind of game you're running. Whether you're a first-timer or experienced, you'll be able to run some good adventures with the best of them. Looking at the production of the book, it's very pretty. Layout is very easy on the eyes, but if you're printing it out, try to print it out full page. It was laid out to be the same size as Big Eye Small Mouth when done as a physical book. Uh, the art is top-notch, and there's a decent amount of fan service in the book. If you're an otaku, you know what I mean. Panty shots. It's a very beautiful book to behold. As I said before, the book does contain many characters, both PC and NPC. Since anime is not a genre, but a style, really, a Japanese style, it would have been interesting to see some setting examples written up that we could just jump right into. Uh, by way of comparison, when I mentioned HeartQuest earlier, it gives quite the handful of settings as examples, so you don't have to think of anything yourself or try to watch a bunch of anime to get some ideas. You would just be able to jump in and play with the setting right there. That would have been nice to have here as well. So except for the dice pool mechanic, which is better than most I've seen, this is a fine game. It captures the anime feel perfectly. I feel that I do need to compare it to Big Eye Smallmouth. Big Eye Smallmouth doesn't handle low-powered games very well, especially if you're using the D20 system version of the rules. It handles action animes like, like Ranma or Sailor Moon very nicely. But when you get to shoujo anime, like school dramas, it gets difficult. You have to really lower the amount of points, and even then, it's, you might have quite a few left over. OVA can handle it quite nicely, though, as well as anything else you can throw at it. Although I have yet to try it with something like Dragon Ball Z. Short of that, though, it's great. This week, I'd like to talk about a favorite topic of mine. Villains. I talk a lot about playing heroes all the time, since heroes are the topic of any role-playing games. However, any good epic is useless if heroes don't have something to conflict with them, so we need a good villain to foil the average hero. Conflict is, of course, the heart of any story. We can't tell one without it. Role-playing games are no exception. Even the most basic of role-playing scenarios, the dungeon crawl, needs conflict. Hence the need for wandering monsters and placed monsters. Superhero games need 
bad guys to beat up, and cyberpunk games need a little black ice to keep things interesting. But these things can make for disjointed adventures, and it's nice to be able to tie them together somehow. A good villain is a nice way to do it. How you introduce the villain is up to you. The characters can be hired to find him, they might stumble across one of his plans, they might meet accidentally, or the villain could come gunning for them for some reason. Maybe he looked into the future and found them foiling his plans, and now he wants to take them out before any real damage has been done. Having a recurring villain works for any genre. Superman is always fighting Lex Luthor. Luke Skywalker had to fight Darth Vader and the Empire. In the Dragonlance books, Kitiara kept showing up to make trouble for the companions. Sailor Moon had a different bad guy every season. Although the American dubbing, dubbing company tried to tie them all together, too. Villains can take different forms, too. Luke Skywalker just didn't fight Darth Vader. He fought the Empire that Vader worked for. He had to fight the Emperor. Although a group can make a good bad guy, it's good to have one individual stand out from the rest in order to make the heroes really sweat. Who can be a villain? Anyone. Yes, anyone can be or become the bad guy. In Star Wars, the enemy posed as a good guy that everyone trusted, but then turned out to be not only the bad guy, but the king of bad guys, Emperor Palpatine, who corrupted the main good guy, Anakin, and turned him bad. That bad guy later had to fight his own son. Corruption is a great way to introduce a villain. The previous example is, of course, Darth Vader. Another is Kitiara. In the Dragonlance Chronicles books, she was friends with the companions sometime in the past and is even a half-sister to two of the companions, Raceland and Karaman. She adventured with them and even had a relationship with one of them, Tannis Half-Elven. But in book two, she's revealed to be a dragon high lord working for the armies of the very goddess that the companions are fighting. Think of it. She was one of them, and she knows their every secret. Chilling, huh? In role-playing, a player character can easily turn against the rest. Players, if you want to do such a thing, talk to your GM first. But when you do, I think you'll get a kick out of it. After all, you're giving him more to play with, and you'll discover one interesting thing that a lot of GMs know. It's fun to play the bad guy. Now, not every villain is grandiose. Sometimes they're just someone that the characters get on the wrong side of. Two kinds of people you don't want to piss off. Bards and politicians. Politicians often have the law on their side. If they're good people, don't tread on the wrong side of the law, because a misunderstanding can make an, an enemy of someone they should be friends with. On the other hand, if it's a corrupt politician, they'll use the law to twist it to his whim to catch the characters. Bards? But unknown, don't let the idea of the guy in the tavern playing the music put you off. Remember, the traveling minstrel was often welcomed as a bearer of news. He would sing of current events, tell people stories of things and places he's seen, and tell what people are doing and where they're doing it. If you manage to anger a bard, especially one who travels and is very well known in the area, you might find your trip to the next several towns very hostile. In modern times, that translates into a reporter. No, she probably won't lie about the characters, that can damage her credibility. But she can twist the facts to suit her needs. If she's a television reporter or an anchor, the characters will probably have to do a lot of will probably have to do a lot to get their good name back. Someone in the limelight like this can make a good recurring villain because she can report on the characters with everything they do. A good reporter also has a lot of sources. Remember that. Now, in a pulp campaign, there's the easily recognizable villain who twists his mustache and laughs maniacally. You'll never catch me! <laughs> These can be a lot of fun to play. For them, you just have to ham it up. Just ask Jeremy Irons, who played Profian in the first D&D movie. That is a hammed-up villain. Before you go complaining about that, try playing that kind of role yourself. You'll discover it's a lot of fun. However, all good things must come to an end. Or do they? 
How often does a bad guy get away, only to fight the good guys in a future episode or a future issue? Make sure they can slip away so the bad guy... Make sure they can just slip away so the good guys can't get them. Goons are good for that, for providing a distraction. Sooner or later, though, the good guys must prevail, otherwise the players will get bored. The villain will be trapped with nowhere to go, or will decide that these pesky heroes must be done away with once and for all. Remember the live-action He-Man movie? As bad as that movie was, Skeletor's line toward the end was priceless. Let this be our final battle! Final battles are a great thing to work up to in a campaign. It takes planning and many game sessions, but the payoff is epic and fun. A final battle, though, can always have a twist. Maybe the villain the players have been fighting works for someone else, who then takes the villain's place. You fought my disciple, now you must fight me! Well, now you have another campaign! What I did in one of my campaigns was I pulled a situation right from the Street Fighter video game. For those of you who remember Street Fighter 2, you play someone, battle other characters, then you get to the bosses, who are Vega, Sagat, and finally you battle the main baddie, M. Bison. Each incarnation of the game had the same basic storyline. You battle everyone, beat Bison, all is right with the world. With the Turbo Edition of the game, though, you can get to Bison. But then, if you played it in a certain way, you get to Bison, the lights go out, you hear punching. And when the lights come back on, Bison is down, and standing in his place is Akuma, and who you have to battle instead, new villain. I did the same thing. I used the villain Bargle from the original D&D box sets, and later detailed in a Mistara setting. I liked him, so I used him as a recurring villain to steal the PC's victories away. They got to really hating him, and he grew more powerful with every encounter. Finally, the characters confronted Bargle in the ruins of Castle Mistamir, where they met him for the first time, and they engaged in battle. But before any damage could be done, darkness fell around everyone. And you hear a scuffle, lots of hissing, and Bargle screaming. When the magical darkness cleared, Bargle was dead. And a fearsome half-man, half-snake stood before them. I have been watching you all these many years. I am Viprus, and you great heroes shall fall before me. They would discover his motivations in later games, but for now, they were in trouble, and they knew it, and that's all they needed to know. Where did I introduce Bargle? In a dungeon crawl. So you can introduce villains everywhere. Keep them coming back, and keep your players guessing. Make sure the characters come to really hate the villain, even as your players love them. A good recurring villain is a real spice for your campaign. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can find this show every week at www.rpgshowcase.com, and show comments can be left at the website or emailed to me at mike at rpgshowcase.com. We have a lot more in the works for this show, so keep your aggregators pointed here and keep checking in. If you like, go ahead and sign up for show updates. Take care, everybody, and keep your dice in your bag and away from the cats. Ah!